All right, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand because Bill will hand one out or we'll get one over on this side. All right, thank you, Ruth. All right, so somebody already blessed me today, and I think they're in this service, but they said, I walk my dog down in the harbor, and there's a guy that I've gotten to know because he walks his dog, and uh, we, uh, I've brought up the subject of God, and he said, no, no, I was told early in life, I didn't ever need God. I was capable myself. Said, the person said, I finally have used their dog to say, look at your dog. You're, you're, who do you think made your dog with uh, that color eyes and nose and, and, uh, and hair? And uh, you don't want to know God at all? So anyway, they're going to come uh, on Easter, right? Isn't that great? So I'm hoping they have a place. To, uh, praise God, okay? Now, not to put you on the spot, but who already says, I've already invited her. I know who I'm going to invite to come with us to Easter. All right. I want more of you thinking about it than that. I want you praying to say, that, well, we, there's got to be somebody I know that I want to have here about Jesus Christ. So this person arrives here next week. They're not used to being in church. They're not sure how it goes. It sure would be nice to have somewhere for them to park. <laughs> so as many of you as could get up early, put your wig on, your teeth in, and be here for the 8 o'clock service. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Get yourself together and, and, and come at 8 o'clock instead of 9.30. 9.30 is the most popular hour for people. Okay. In fact, young mommies say that's really when church ought to be for people with small children. All right, so... Anyway, there will be lots of people coming at 9.30, but I need more people to go to 8. Is there anybody here who says, boy, I could make that commitment. Jesus, I could be here at 8 o'clock next week. Get a jump on the Easter egg hunting, okay? So if more of you would consider that, then another huge sacrifice is, do you have any friends here at church that you could ride carpool and leave a car somewhere else? Would be a huge help. Our, our, we generally, we have twice as many people here on Easter as any other Sunday. And so, um, of course, we, the, the adult Sunday school classes do not meet that day. And um, <clears throat> we, we try to have, we don't offer as much food um, so that people are encouraged to go get in their cars afterwards and keep moving. Um, and, and if you could help by sharing a car with somebody, is there anybody here who says, yeah, I think we know somebody. We could call and we could leave a car at either our house or their house. Anybody? Okay, do I need to keep talking about this? I only saw about three hands go up, and I'm hoping for about 200, okay? Do you know what I'm saying? It's to, to, to see, this is important. If, they, if your guest gets here and there's nowhere for them to park, they will pull right out the other end of the parking lot and keep going. They're not committed to be here, and if, if you want them to get to hear about Jesus, then you need to provide a space for them, both in in the parking lot and in the sanctuary. So help me make it happen. Next week, there'll be chairs up on the sides. The choir will stay up here the whole time, right? And the, the chairs will be up here on the sides. Don't be shy. Just come sit up here. It's not about you. You know what I'm saying? We just, we just, we just need the chairs that you're sitting in where you're comfortable to be for our guests. And so just wanting to get you ready so you're thinking about uh, other people that way, to just to come up and to fill these wings in, um, and, uh, and so we can have as many people as possible get into this space to hear about Jesus. Okay, we are talking about God's idea for power. We've been in this little series on counterfeit culture where we've talked about sex and money and power. And uh, God has given us many good gifts. And, and yet when sin gets a hold of us, and we, we can lose what they really are, that they're gifts that, that people end up turning into God's to ensnare us and to enslave us. And so we've been talking about these, and uh, we're talking about power. Power is given to us by God, but the, uh, you know, the idolatry of it leaves great hurt and devastation in its wake. Somebody famous said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
Um, if, if you Google it, it says Lord Acton, a British historian of the late 19th century, was the first one to say that, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's other people who, want to, who feel like they would deserve credit for it because um, it's a true statement. And power is the ability to get what you want. Power well used is applauded, especially when it achieves its good goal. So, you know, one college team managed to get past another to win a championship. And I hope you were cheering for the right team that won in overtime, right? And, uh, you know, and, and so then you'd be exulting when they cut down the nets. Uh, so power can also be abused. And there's been lots of recent examples in the news where people have had to resign because of uh, sexual indiscretion or uh, money mismanagement or uh, cheating to get their kids into school or uh, to get through school and on and on and on. And um, so power can be abused. So it's not power in and of itself. It's, it's how it's used and the goal to which it's applied and to reach the end. So Timothy Keller is one that's been helpful. He wrote a book, Counterfeit Gods. And uh, I want to, it's uh, the empty promises of money, sex, and power, and the only hope that matters. And so I would commend this to you, but here, let me give you a little flavor of what he says on the topic we're looking at today. Quote, in any culture in which God is largely absent, I would say like ours, sex, money, and politics will fill the vacuum for different people. This is the reason that our political discourse is increasingly ideological and polarized. It is deeper than a lack of bipartisanship. The roots go back to the beginning of the world, to our alienation from God. When love of one's people becomes an absolute, he's talking about idolatry. When love of one's people becomes an absolute, it turns into racism. When love of equality turns into a supreme thing, it can result in hatred and violence towards anyone who's led a privileged life. It is the settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. When we center our lives on an idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. Well, there was a, a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. He died in 1971, and here he also said, We gave in to the temptation to be as God. And now it is part of our nature. Rather than accept our finitude and dependence on God, we desperately seek ways to assure ourselves that we still have power over our own lives. But it's an illusion. Everyone is grasping for power. You look in the Bible, people are grasping for power. You look around in our world, people are grasping for power. Everyone, it seems, except Jesus, the only one who is truly power. Because Jesus is God, and God really has all the power. So if you look at the life of Jesus, as we are today on Palm Sunday, Jesus practiced most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, up in the north part of Israel. He did miracles, which attracted larger crowds. It helped people. He taught uh, in parables, which are stories with a point, and he uh, gathered his disciples around for additional coaching. And crowds flocked to hear him. They, well, maybe they wanted to see a miracle. They had heard of some, like feeding of the 5,000. And uh, Jesus knew that he was attracting a lot of people who had their own ideas, they were there in the crowd cheering him on, but they had their version of what the new king of the Jews was going to be, and they were ecstatic about Jesus because they thought he could fulfill their plan. But Jesus was sent by God on a mission, and Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to suffer and ultimately did on the cross. He came to save, and then he would be exalted. 
So as Jesus did miracles and taught God's word and the crowds around him got larger and larger, these people are so enthusiastic, they're ecstatic in their minds. Here is the one who's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures that talked about the coming Messiah and about deliverance. And the crowds had in their mind that Jesus is going to step up and getting people organized and getting an army and tossing out the Romans and he would just get bigger and better and more powerful, just up, up, up. And instead, Jesus took a different trajectory. Jesus demonstrated the plan and the power of God by going down, down, down. Down from heaven to earth. Down from Galilee to Jerusalem. Down from lauded Messiah hopeful to suffering servant. Down from recognized public speaker to convicted uh, criminal. All the way to the torture of the cross. And as fully devoted followers of Christ, this this should be a little disturbing. We are called to follow Christ wherever the road takes us. Paul described this path in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There was a turning point in Jesus' ministry while he was up in Galilee. Yes, he's gathering crowds. They're getting larger and larger. And uh, yes, he's teaching people God's word. And uh, people are responding, uh, some in faith, and some have their own agenda. But when he was at the top of the country in Caesarea Philippi, he gathered the disciples around. You remember, it's recorded in Matthew 16, starts verse 13. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? which is his favorite name for himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other old-time Old Testament prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus went on to compliment Peter profusely, indicating God revealed that to you, Peter. You didn't think that up on your own. As a natural man, he wouldn't think it up on his own. The only way for us to come to God is to be drawn by God's Spirit to him. Jesus is God, and he's the Christ. And then Jesus took that moment to say to the disciples, now listen, guys, I want to tell you what's coming next. And he explained that he's headed to Jerusalem to suffer and to die And they're all thinking he's headed to become king and lead an army. And he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And Peter Peter actually pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. He said, don't talk like that, Jesus. And Jesus gave Peter the sternest rebuke found in Scripture. He said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We don't naturally think the thoughts of God unless we feel that tug of God pulling on our life and respond in faith. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody who says, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. Now, the issue really is authority. People want to determine their own reality. They want to choose what they believe, you know, they think is worth believing or not. It's really, they're more interested in being God than in worshiping God. I'm spiritual, disconnected from God. It's impossible. And it's a power conflict. And it's really making an idol of the power that God has granted them. People crave power to self-exalt 
And Peter had basically said to Jesus, Jesus, you have a bad plan there. Let's stay on the A plan. Let's stick with the game plan that says you, being all-powerful, will set up a kingdom and be king. And my job will be to protect you from harm. Your job will be reestablish the kingdom of Israel and rule as the king. Get the Romans out of here. What made Peter think that he would know better than Jesus? Pride. What is it about any of us, any of us that think we know better or we're smarter or we're faster or we're prettier or we're more noticeable or we're more desirable or we're more and more on and fill in the blank? What makes us think that we should be the one in charge? The power person. It all really comes back to pride and to believing a lie. And Peter and the other disciples had become followers of Jesus. They're walking with Jesus every day. They've determined that Jesus is God. And Jesus has told them what is just ahead, where he is leading them. But Jesus' followers are failing to follow. There's a problem with that. They're followers, but they're failing to follow. And it's not a fluke. It wasn't an accident. They didn't just miss it or trip over it this time. It was intentional. Jesus gives them another chance. Just in the next chapter, Matthew 17 Matthew goes out of his way to repeat the paragraph that says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed about this. So when you go into chapter 18, which is the next few verses, you know what? They're walking along, and they begin to have a discussion. And we learn from the books of Mark and Luke that it happens behind Jesus' back. But Jesus finally says, what were you guys talking about? You know what they were talking about? Well, which of us is going to be the greatest? How do you get from Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die for the sin of the world, and them fighting over who's going to be the most important? Well, you know, Jesus isn't going to be here. We've got a big organization happening here. Expectations are high. People are expecting to see something. Jesus won't be here. Who should run this thing? Well, not you. I'm probably better qualified. Well, how about, and on and on and on they went. And the irony is Jesus, who is the greatest, has just explained he's going to suffer and die as part of God's plan, and they and rise from the dead, and their response is so clueless. Well, which of us is most important? So Jesus gave him a third chance. You just jump over to chapter 20, verse 17. Matthew says it again. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. On the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So this is the third time that Jesus said, hey, here is the, the, what looks to you like bad news. It's actually the thing that will save the whole world. But it looks like bad news. I'm going to offer my salvation to everybody. And I can do that because I'm offering my own life as the atonement. So Jesus is saying, look it. I'm telling you what's going to happen. Let's get ready for this world-altering event, which looks like bad news to you. Jesus keeps giving them indication that God is working by going down, 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 down through serving and humility, down through self-denial and suffering, down through sacrificial atonement, down to death. And the way to live a successful life is to follow God's plan where it leads. But the disciples are looking up, up, up. Which of us is going to be the most important? They're looking up the self-promotion and recognition and power and influence and importance and self-adulation. They have placed power as an idol, a counterfeit for letting God be God and be in charge. 
and just really being a follower. Do you know what happened after the third warning? James and John got their mom, and the three of them came and said to Jesus, Jesus, we want to ask for a favor, and we want you to say yes, whatever it is. They don't want to tell Jesus in advance what they're going to ask. Jesus says, well, what do you want to ask? Of course he knew. He says, well, when you come in your kingdom, let James sit on one side of you. Let John sit on the other side of you. The two most important spots, my two VIPs, will be right there with you, Jesus. Oh, man. I don't think Jesus even got to answer before the rest of the disciples who heard this got really, really mad. How dare they be so bold? Why didn't I think of it? And here's Jesus, who must have been really disappointed in all of them. He's given three warnings, and they've come back with three, I don't get it, kind of answers. Basically, their feet are following Jesus and have for three years every day. But their hearts are still set on self-promotion and pride. Their feet are following Jesus, you understand? But their hearts are far from him. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, you guys don't get it. This is why I came, not to do your plan. So Jesus just kept walking and staying on the path that God had sent him down and headed to Jerusalem to suffer so that you and I could be set free from sin. Aren't you glad he stayed on track? We don't need just some person coming up with a plan. Just follow God's plan. See, God demonstrated his power in Jesus. Jesus came to serve and to suffer and to save. And then he was going to be exalted. And that wasn't a new plan. That was God's plan before Jesus ever showed up in this world. It wasn't just a bump in the road. It was God's plan to go down, down, down from heaven to earth, down to serving others, down to suffering, down to death by crucifixion, down to the grave. And Jesus submitted his will to the will of the Father. Jerusalem didn't and wouldn't, couldn't understand that kind of Messiah. The Jesus disciples didn't understand this kind of power either. Jesus, a servant, willing to suffer and die himself to fulfill God's plan? What happens to us? That's not the kind of Messiah we're looking for. And Jesus explained it over and over and over, but they chose not to listen. But Jesus is God, remember? And he knew the will of his Father in heaven, and so he willingly moved towards Jerusalem, towards suffering, towards his death, towards the sacrifice, because he had submitted himself to the will of the Father. That's exactly what you and I need to do with our lives as well. He set his face towards Jerusalem, so he took his disciples. He traveled with a lot of other people headed to the Feast of Passover, which was going to be celebrated in Jerusalem. So they would walk down, follow the path along the Jordan River all the way down to Jericho. Then from Jericho, it was 17 windy miles up a hill to get to Jerusalem. And uh, so... On the way, of course, he's still talking to people about becoming his followers. He healed two blind men, according to Matthew. Um, and Mark and Luke named one of them as Bart, blind Bartimaeus, hanging out in, uh, in Jericho, so one of the poorest people in town. He also intentionally went out of his way to go to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector for the whole country, so one of the richest people in town. And Jesus is still basically saying, come follow me with your lives. He arrives in the village of Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. It's at the top of the Mount of Olives. Anybody remember what famous thing happened in Bethany? 
Lazarus was raised from the dead just a few weeks before this. So people would have known that. It would have gotten talked about. Who else ever in the history of the world had raised somebody from the dead? But Jesus had gone, stood at the, and Lazarus' friends and family had been very disappointed. And Jesus, ah, you missed it. Why weren't you here? You could have kept them alive, which was true. But Jesus showed up four days later and called Lazarus out of the tomb back to life. And of course, this caused Jesus' popularity just to soar off the top of the chart. I mean, nobody in the history of the world had just been able to call somebody back from the dead. I mean, imagine the power. So the people are delirious with delight. We've got the most powerful guy right here. He can fulfill our unfulfilled dreams. He can give us our country back. They have all these plans for Jesus just going up and up and up. And Jesus is getting close to Jerusalem from the top of the Mount of Olives. You know, you come around the corner, you've been dragging yourself up the hill. It's the aha moment when you can see the city of Jerusalem gleaming in the sun. And he sent two of his disciples to go and to get a, a donkey colt. In fact, the story is, and I'll pick it up in Luke 19, starting verse 29. It says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where you're entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying my colt? You'll say, well, the Lord has need of it. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus went there, the, the disciples went there. They found this uh, colt. They're untying it. They get questioned about it. They bring the colt back to Jesus. And right there up at the top of the Mount of Olives, they begin to take their coats and to put them over the, the little donkey and then put Jesus on it. And uh, this actually had been prophesied hundreds of years before that the king was, the Messiah was going to come riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey colt. And the people must have known this scripture and they've recognized Jesus. Some of these people probably were at the feeding of the 5,000 and where they had tried to make Jesus king, but somehow he had slipped through their fingers. And now here he is on the top of the mountain and they got him. They're around him. And yes, he's even going along with it. And they put the donkey with all the coats and he gets on it and they're shredding palm branches off of the trees and they're putting them down in front of him and the crowd is getting bigger. I think people saw what was happening and came out of the city of Jerusalem because it's kind of down through a valley and then up through the, the city gates. But you can imagine the excitement that prevailed. Have you heard the news? I mean, Jesus is here. Jesus is coming. He's the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. I saw it happen. I talked to Lazarus myself afterwards. I mean, only the Messiah, only God could do that. And the news travels from one person to another until finally there's this great crowd and they're all moving down the, 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 the mountain together with Jesus shouting, Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're announcing a new king. Which you you got Romans, you know, up on the top wall watching what's happening. And let me just read it how Luke tells us. It starts verse 35. It says, They brought the donkey colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he's drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is leading this massive throng of humanity, cheering down the mountains, headed toward Jerusalem, yelling and singing and putting on their coats in the way and the palm branches and, and um, 
making room for the, the one that they've placed all their hopes on him to destroy the Romans and free them from their land from tyranny. So you gotta, you got to catch the whole scene because you're headed towards this walled city of Jerusalem, and the main thing you can see is the temple. But just to the right of it is the Antonio Fortress, and in it, you've, it's got to be bursting with extra troops, Roman troops who've come into town to keep the peace. And they're lining the wall of the city, looking to quell any potential uprising, ready to use the muscle of Rome to keep peace and order. Next to it, you've got the temple and the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. I bet they're all dressed in their most festive attire. And they're ready for this huge celebration that's sending out the message, we are the authorities of how to be right with God. Just follow us. And then around Jesus, of course, you've got this boisterous crowd, some that just happened to be there, some that had, had planned in advance. And there's this fine line between a crowd and a mob. Because one minute they could be cheering for you, and the next they could be yelling, crucify you, crucify you. But there's strength in numbers. And then there's Jesus' little loyal band that are sometimes kind of clueless, but they have walked with him for three years, and they're willing to die for the cause if necessary because they know Jesus can bring people back from the dead, and they are a little cocksure that they have got the greatest power right there. They've got Jesus. They've got the ace. Because Jesus can make dead people come alive again. Jesus has the power just to take us up, up, up. And we've got a plan for him. And then there's Jesus, who's on the donkey but seems a little distant, a little quiet. People are gaga over him. He just seems to be taking it all in, sitting up on this pile of coats, riding down a donkey, tripling all, tramping all over stuff, and uh, people yelling and screaming and clapping and cheering. I mean, you can hardly hear yourself think. And then all of a sudden, everything stopped. And it was like it was a traffic jam. I go, what's going on? Well, people up at the front could see Jesus had stopped the parade he had stopped the donkey and they saw his body and he's shaking and you begin to realize is he laughing no they look at Jesus and he's looking at the city of Jerusalem and he sees the mixture on their faces and on the the mass of humanity crowding there he realized the emptiness of their lives they've all got their own agenda they're not following God they've got their own power play in in process and it says in Luke 19, when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it. He wept over it. This, there's only two times it talks about Jesus weeping. One is at the tomb of Lazarus because sin is, separates and it causes death. And so there's loss and sorrow. And then right here where he sees the city of Jerusalem, he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you wherein your enemies will set a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They had eyes, but they didn't see. They had ears, but they didn't hear. They missed the whole point of the message that God had given to them. And Jesus is seized with overwhelming sadness. He wept. He wept the tears of God for the people of God because they were so far from God. They were tears caused by the gap of what could have been and what was and what would be. A gap between what he would do and what they had hoped for. A huge divide between making Jesus Lord, putting him in charge, or setting him up as king and demanding that he accomplish certain things. I mean, if you've ever had a real dream dashed, if you've ever had a love that's been snuffed out, if you've ever had a promise that's been broken and broke your heart, an injustice suffered, a hope that's become hopeless because of somebody else, 
then you know how Jesus felt in that moment. Because Jesus dreamed of peace and a purpose of salvation and a hope of people who voluntarily saying, God, you be in charge in my life. And just following God. And instead, Jesus knows that over and over and over, the people who claim to be God's people, who've called on his name, have forsaken him for their own agenda. And he could see, looking at the city of Jerusalem and the temple, he could hear the hustle and bustle of commerce and construction, and he knew that most people were just going about their lives oblivious to what God wanted. And Jesus foresaw the calamity that was to come, and it broke his heart. And he knew how good it could have been if the people of Jerusalem had all just turned their hearts and lives to him and fulfilled what God wanted them to fulfill. And Jesus had to break their hearts. They're waving their palm branches, which basically says, Jesus, you're the next warlord. You're the next hero. You're the next general of armies. Overthrow the Romans. And Jesus said, I didn't come for that purpose. I came to show you a more excellent way. I came to show you the way of love. And he had said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If somebody smites you on one cheek, give them the other one also. If they want your coat, give them your shirt too. And if they command you to carry their pack a mile, carry it two miles. And these people listened. They must have thought, boy, those are beautiful words. I'm sure that will work for somebody else. But if you want me to love the Romans? I hate the Romans. We can't love Rome. But don't you see, that's exactly what he was saying. Love even Rome, because Rome with her mighty armies has seen the power of the sword, but Rome hasn't seen the power of love. Show them love. And the nation of Israel had this opportunity to show love to Rome, something that was new and different, but they didn't understand Jesus. They completely misunderstood his mission, and their opportunity to show love slipped away, never to return. And Jesus wept over the loss. Jerusalem didn't recognize the Messiah when he came. How different their lives could have been if they had just recognized him and bowed before him and then followed him, not just with their feet, but with their hearts. You know, today, just like the city of Jerusalem, we find ourselves in the presence of Jesus. I wonder what he finds when he looks at our faces. When he looks into our hearts, does he see power-hungry people, power, people concerned about so many things that they never bother to consider what's eternally important? Have you put Christ on the throne of your life? Have you replaced any of the idols that would want to work their way there? Because Jesus went to fulfill God's will, down, 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 all the way to death and beyond. And Paul finished his little story by saying he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So power is the ability to get what you want. And Jesus is true power. And instead of asserting ourselves and uh, claiming power for ourselves and checking our greatness factor or self-promoting, those can get twisted sideways. They don't end where we want them to end. Why not just let God be God and be the best fully devoted follower of Jesus every step of the way with your feet and with your heart? So I want to encourage you this week. It's it's Easter week. It's Passion Week. I want you to think a little bit less about yourself and a lot more about Jesus. I'd encourage you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John this week. You could read all four stories of Jesus. Spend some time, extra time in God's Word. I want you to come to worship extra. I hope you're here Thursday night, Friday night, 
Saturday to cheer on all the children, and then Sunday Easter at 8 o'clock, by the way. And I hope you bring somebody with you who needs to hear about Jesus. But whatever you do, don't miss out on the joy of Jesus in your heart. Let Jesus be Jesus. Let him lead. You, let him lead his church. Let him lead. He's the king. He's the Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's stand together. Dear Jesus, we thank you for being our God, for being our Lord, for being our Savior. We praise you and we love you. So take us from this place aware that uh, how we think and how we respond matters. I pray that we will be thinking your thoughts this week. We'll be reading your word. We'll be in tune with you. We will repent before you. We will listen to your voice and we will follow what you tell us. For family and friends that we know and love who need you, I pray that you will give us the courage to speak to them and invite them this week. May we be filled with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.